13. And again, we'll be going all the way through the end of the chapter. Romans 14, verses 13 to 23. Let me read this as we get started. Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The story goes that in the the wake of roughly uh, 10 years of mistreatment and violence and oppression from the British government, uh, certain people within the American colonies, they began to grow frustrated and tired and somewhat impatient with uh, both the, the civil behavior that the colonies had continually shown Great Britain, but also the violence and and just overall lack of respect that was reciprocated. Uh, One of these men was named Patrick Henry, whose argument to the president and the leadership of the the Virginia Convention was that the colonies, they needed to stop hoping for freedom from Britain, and they needed to start preparing to fight for it. One day in particular, he, he stood and he made this impassioned speech before the leadership, laying out the potential... Uh, results of, of failing to prepare for battle and letting Britain continue to, to stronger in them the way that they had ever since they left the homeland. He explained that the, this current state of peace that they were, they were living in, it was, it was a lie. <laughs> and that sooner rather than later, Great Britain, they were going to use its power to subdue them once and for all. He, however, was not going to stand for this. Believing even the Almighty God to be on his side, he reiterated, over and over and over again, that he would rather die than live in chains, ending with these final words that we all recognize, give me liberty or give me death. It may be somewhat surprising to hear this morning that the gospel actually has the same message in it. If I don't have freedom in Christ to to act according to my own judgment and conscience on things that the Bible does not explicitly condemn, then I've been sent back to the way of death under the old man. And this is so true that I should be willing to fight in the gospel, not only for my own freedom, but for the freedom of my brothers and sisters in Christ as well, because this is part of the work on Christ, of Christ on my behalf. But this, of course, demands that we, that we, that we understand our freedom, that we understand both what we're, what we're freed from in the gospel, but also that we understand what we're freed into, 
Uh, Luther said it this way. He, he put two statements at the very beginning of his, his kind of uh, treatise or explanation of Christian freedom. He said, a Christian is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. That's freedom from. But he also said, a Christian is a most dutiful, dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's freedom into. And the two go hand in hand. They, they can't be separated. And these are going to be sort of, sort of just our, our working points for our time in Romans 14 this morning. Uh, when we come to Romans 14 and talk about this, this freedom that we now have in Christ in the gospel, what we need to try to do is identify both what we have freedom from, but also what we now have freedom to, again, in the gospel. And in so doing, answer the question of how these things are to be lived out in the life of the church. And so let's start first with what we've been freed from. First, the gospel here tells us that a Christian, he's Lord of all, subject to none other than Christ himself. But what Paul tells us specifically about our freedom here in this text is that we've been freed from the ability to be made unclean by anything external to ourselves. Paul writes in verse 13, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Nothing is unclean in itself. Friends, if you, if you know your Bibles well this morning, you may, you may realize that this is no small statement to make. Actually, it's a, it's a huge statement. <laughs> it's a massive statement. And the reason it's a huge statement, I'm just going to state it up front and we'll kind of work backwards. It's not, it's not because of the things in and of themselves. It's a huge statement because it's first about God setting a people apart for himself who are perfectly clean. Where am I getting this from? Well, uh, you'll remember, maybe, <laughs> that in Leviticus, which I know we're all well-versed in, in Leviticus, that's where all the laws about uh, clean and, and unclean things are and, and sort of the protocols that go with that. Um, but more specifically in chapter 11 there is where it talks about clean and unclean animals and, and what you can and can't eat, uh, which is the main topic here in Romans 14. The specific things that Paul seems to be addressing uh, are, are about eating and drinking. He says that in several places, and then he kind of applies the principles uh, more broadly from there. But it starts with eating and drinking, and the main backdrop for this is, is Leviticus 11. But when we read through Leviticus 11, right, uh, and, and we see all the rules about clean and unclean, what makes something clean or unclean, and the protocols to follow, when we zoom out of all of that and we, and we really try to understand the overall point of it all, we see that it's not really just about clean and unclean animals, it's more significantly about clean and unclean people. It's about what makes a person clean or unclean and how one can stay clean and avoid becoming unclean. Are you following me here? But friends, even that has a more important idea in mind because it's not just about individual people being clean or unclean. Before that, it's about God setting a part of people for himself. That's the whole point of all of it. That God would have a people who are who are clean as opposed to those outside who are 
who are unclean or common, it will talk about. It's him having a people who are holy as I am holy. As he says all across the Old Testament, that is his demand for his people. The problem, though, that we, that we all know is that even though God demands that of his people, even under the Old Covenant, the law was ineffective in truly keeping the people clean. And the reason that was so is because the, the, the problem, it did not lie in anything inherently external to the people and clean and unclean things kind of out there that they may or may not come in contact with and what they do afterwards. Their problem was their unclean hearts. That was the problem. The problem was never just outside of them. It was, it was inside of them. They did not just need an outside cure. They needed cured inside out. We're watching this show. It's called 1883. Um, some of you may have heard of it. It's sort of like a prequel to the show Yellowstone that came out recently that I know is really popular if you've, if you've seen that um, over the last few years. The, the whole thing, uh, it follows the same family through different generations, the Dutton family. Um, this one in particular is following them uh, back in the post-Civil War generation. And it's, it's watching how they, they leave Tennessee, they're headed to Fort Worth, Texas, and they're going to journey west and eventually settle uh, in Montana where their, where their family ranch is established. Um, now, this is, this is in the, the 1800s, right? Uh, traveling that far it's very difficult, very dangerous. Honestly, it looks like a, a, just, a, just a terrible time to me, to be quite honest with you. My wife gets all into this stuff too, by the way. Like she, we watch these shows and she's like, doesn't it just like kind of make you want to be a cowboy? And I'm like, absolutely not. It does not make me want to be a cowboy. Like I knew before I watched this that I didn't want to be a cowboy. All this did was give me like specific reasons why I don't want to be a cowboy. Anyways, I'm going to... One of the things they begin to run into on this journey, uh, journey west, is, is, is death of all sorts. They run into to disease and, and sickness that they can't cure. They, they have just random accidents. Um, people, people just start dying on the way over. And this show is told from the perspective of uh, the daughter of James Dutton, who he's, he's the one leading this whole group of people traveling west, she, she narrates certain parts of the show. And as this begins to take place among the camp, she comments that her father, he begins to move his camp further and further outside where everyone else was setting up each night. And these are her words. As if death was an external problem and carelessness was contagious. As if death was an external problem and carelessness was contagious. The shocking reality, though, is that that's not true, is it? Death and sin are not external problems. As much as we tell ourselves that sometimes and, and actually believe it, they're internal problems. They live inside of us. And this is the same shocking reality that the Bible presents us with as well from the very beginning that our problem it doesn't lie in these external things that make us unclean we are unclean in and of ourselves this is why jesus said in mark 7 there is nothing outside a person that can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him 
For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil and sin. And it says specifically there, thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus comes and it's, it's now it's no longer about the external thing. And praise be to God that the solution he gives us, it's not just more kind of outside in, externally focused rules and protocols to keep and follow because we know that that does not work. The answer the Bible continually puts forth is that God is going to now cleanse us from the inside out by giving his people a new heart and actually, actually putting his spirit within them. This is the hope of the Old Testament, that we'd be, that we'd be cleansed finally and completely in Christ. Listen to the language when David, remember this, when David, he, he repeatedly asks the Lord in Psalm 51, again, in the aftermath of his, his great fall and sin, he asks the Lord to clean him from his sin. But how is that going to happen? He says, create a clean heart in me, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Listen also to the language when the Lord, he declares the coming of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, where he says, I'm going to, essentially, I'm going to gather you and, and set you apart from the other nations. And when I do that, these are the words, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And so the idea is that, that God's people, they're, they're no longer just going to be marked off or kind of set apart from the outside nations by, by keeping the laws. But that's going to happen now by the new heart and the giving of the Spirit. They're no longer defiled outside in, but are cleansed inside out. A picture of this reality and sort of this kind of great shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, right, is captured perfectly in Isaiah 6. There, you'll remember Isaiah, he, he's, he's literally at the throne of God. You remember this scene. And he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And, and this is the transition. Don't miss this. Because remember, under the old covenant, if an unclean thing touched a clean person, the person was made unclean. You understand that. That's how it works. But here now we have a man with unclean lips, and it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Under the old covenant, the, the clean person, he touches an unclean thing and is made unclean. But friends, in the new covenant, the unclean person is touched by the purifying power that makes him clean. You see that in the Bible. And friends, this is exactly what we see happen with Jesus. Jesus comes, he, he, he touches the leper. You remember this? The man with unclean skin that, that nobody could be around or come in contact with, who has to live outside the camp because he's unclean. Jesus touches him. And Jesus isn't made unclean. The leper is made clean by the purifying power of Christ. And the same thing now happens with us, too, when, we, when we're given Christ's Spirit who doesn't just help us stay clean through right behavior and following the rules, right? But who actually comes and dwells within us. But now what does this have to do with Romans 14 and with this idea of Christian 
freedom? Well, it's context, right? We have to, we have to understand the context of our freedom in order to really understand the significance and the importance of it in the first place, let alone what to do with it. Similar how if you've been to uh, Washington, D.C., right, they have all these, uh, these war memorials. You guys know this. Uh, one of them, of course, is the World War II Memorial. When you come to the World War II Memorial, uh, you walk through it. it there's there's, there's 4,000 stars on this, on this stone slab. Uh, each star there, remember, 4,000 of them, each one representing 100 American soldiers who were either killed or still missing from that war. And in front of all the stars is written in stone these words. It says, here we mark the price of freedom. See, it's easy when you have freedom, I think, to, to, to take it for granted and misunderstand it because it's easy to miss the context of it. But when you bring the full weight of the context of your freedom to bear on this, on this present-day reality of freedom that you live in, you see very, very quickly that it changes how you think and you feel about it and hopefully how you choose to act in it. So let's do that very thing. Let's bring the full weight of everything we've just said and let's now bring that to bear on this conversation in Romans 14 about Christian freedom and, and what I should eat or drink, Paul says here. Because this is the context of it. Understand that. If we understand the problem that the Bible poses rightly, and we understand the solution that it gives us rightly, then we can ask the question, what should the person who has been perfectly cleansed by Christ eat or drink? And see that the answer is quite simply, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It does not matter. That's an old covenant question. The reason that mattered under the old covenant was so you could be set apart as God's chosen people. But friends, if the gospel is true, then Christ has accomplished that perfectly for you through his work on the cross and and the deposit of his spirit now within you who purifies you and cleanses you once and for all. So so friends, you're now free to eat and drink whatever you choose. (laughs) This is part of what gospel freedom is. We don't have to be concerned with purifying ourselves or keeping ourselves clean and pure. Christ has done that for all who have faith in him. A most free Lord of all, no longer subject to nothing besides Christ himself. Not the law, not the demands of of cleanliness and righteousness, not sin and death, completely free to eat and drink according to the boundaries of Scripture, but free nonetheless. And friends, I just want to stop and ask this morning, do you understand that? Do Do you get that reality, that that's true? Friends, we... We fight in the church. <laughs> and we go back and forth on these, on these arbitrary external things as if they were the gospel issue in and of themselves. Uh, one group will say things like, you can't be faithful to the gospel if you, if you drink alcohol or smoke tobacco or, or send your kids to public school. And then we get another group that comes and says, well, you can't be faithful to Jesus if you're not doing those things. And that's how this conversation often works. And hear me on this, friends. Both, both are wrong because what the gospel says is what's really inherent to the gospel. The, the real gospel issue on these things, it, it's not inherently whether you do or don't. It's whether or not you have the right and freedom to choose for yourself. 
most free Lord of all, subject to none. Do you hear me on this? <laughs> and the sad part is the church, I think, often has gotten this issue very, very, very wrong. What about, I don't know, jeans or slacks? <laughs> Freedom in Christ, friends, has no bearing on your faithfulness to Him. Not even skinny jeans or, or even the ones with holes in them. Can you wear a wedding ring or not? <laughs> Free in Christ. Can I get a tattoo if I want to? Free in Christ. Can I wear my hair long or, or can I grow facial hair? You're free in Jesus. What about the music you listen to or the movies you watch or whether you, you take out debt or you pay for everything in cash or how about this? How about even uh, political engagement? Freedom in Christ. No amens on that this morning. That's all right. We'll keep, we'll keep going. The reality is that we could sit here all morning and go on and on and on and on with things that, that understood rightly are Christian liberties that we have, but that we, we nonetheless, we try to, to kind of legislate and, and control in the life of the church and the life of other people as if it, it was a clear biblical right and wrong issue on the matter because we think that the Lord really cares about the external thing in and of itself. That's the point. And, and we're not saying on the other side that the Bible, it, it doesn't, truly put, put demands on us and, and, and prohibitions on us and put limitations, even in how we participate in some of these things and our liberties in the gospel and, and, and have always demand that we do so with wisdom. All of those things are true. But friends, on the other side of, of that is the equally true reality that we have a, an abundance, an abundance of freedoms now in the gospel that do not affect our faithfulness to Jesus in and of themselves. And the sad truth in the church is that we, we, we fight with passion over, over all of these arbitrary external things as if they were the gospel issues. When this truth right here is the gospel issue we should be fighting for. It, it would be similar to like if, if uh, Patrick Henry was standing up and, and he just fought for the specific issue of taxes, right? <laughs> That'd be, that'd be short-sighted. It'd be missing the real issue. The real issue is freedom. It's true freedom. Likewise, friends, in the gospel, the real issue, it's not whether or not you engage in issue X, Y, or Z, but whether or not you have the freedom to choose for yourself that is what the gospel would demand. But it's one thing to just sort of state the facts of the matter, right? It's a whole other thing to actually flesh this out now in the life of God's people. And this is where we begin to move into what we have been freed into. What does this gospel now look like in the life of God's people? What does this truth look like in God's people? Is this, this is what we'll go on to discuss. The gospel tells us that we're, we're free from all subjects to none. That's our freedom from sin and death and the enemy and, and the law and all of that, the old covenant. Also, the ability to be made unclean by any external thing. But it also tells us what we've been freed to. We are free from all, subject to none, so that we can now become a most dutiful servant subject to all. Right? The two go hand in hand. You can't, you can't separate them in the gospel. We're free in the gospel, but we now use that freedom to serve other people. 
And specifically this morning, Paul's going to tell us that the way we do that, it's not just by exercising our freedom, but by actually being willing to lay it down for the good of others. Read with me in verse 15. He says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Will Smith, the, he's an actor and musician, artist. Some of you may know who I'm talking about. He wrote a memoir, and in it there's this part um, where he, he talks about, uh, he talks about like personality, but in the context of acting. This is what he says. He says, we tend to think of our personalities as fixed and solid. We think of our likes and our dislikes, our beliefs, our nationalities, our political affiliations, our religious convictions, our mannerisms, etc., as us, right? He's saying that that's, that's how we define ourselves often. But the reality is, most of the things that we think of as us are learned habits and patterns and entirely malleable. And sometimes what happens is we realize that the characters we play in a film are no different than the characters we play in real life. What you think of yourself is a fragile construct. And here's the point. He's saying that, that in acting, right, again, this is contextual, he's saying that these, these preferences that we often identify ourselves with are things that they, they can and actually must kind of be taken on and off. You understand what I'm saying? They, they, they take off the things that make them who they are, and they put on new things now that make them into the character they're playing. Otherwise, this goal and, and objective of creating like a good movie, it's impossible if they don't do that. And, and this is similar to how Paul, I think, is going to instruct us to now think about our liberties in Christ. It's this idea that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, where he says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might have some. I do it for the sake of the gospel. Sorry, I might save some. And so the idea, again, is that now we, we, we have these rights in the gospel. We have these freedoms, but we're actually able to put them on and take them off. And we do so willingly in order to best serve those around us. We can only do this by first understanding how the gospel sort of relates again and, and speaks into this. The, the gospel, like we've said, it tells us the problem. It's much bigger than our external any external things, and the solution is bigger than external things. It's, it's the new heart. And now Paul instructs us to kind of see, see the manifestation of this new life in Christ in that same exact order. To not just think in terms of merely external things and actions, but primarily think about them in the framework of the internal conditions of the new heart that we now have. First, it's love, but then also he mentions righteousness, joy, and peace here. These things that Paul lists, righteousness, joy, and peace, they're, they're things that Paul is clear they have been established first between us and God, right? But, but then we're able to now walk in those things with each other as well. And it happens in that order. Uh, remember the story of the, the unforgiving servant, servant in the Gospels. He, he owes the king its 10,000 talents, and the point there is he has, he has, he has no ability to repay that, right? 
The number is so great that he has no ability to repay it. But then the king actually forgives the debt and lets him walk free and clear. He's free to go. But then what does he do? He goes out and he finds one of his servants who owes him a hundred denarii, it says, a, a far, far less amount of debt. And he gets angry at him and throws him in jail until he pays the debt. And this is very clearly a bad response because the idea is that when he owed the debt to the king, he couldn't afford to forgive a debt that he, owed, that he was owed. He had to first worry about, about paying his own debt. But now that the king has forgiven the debt, now he's able to go and forgive others. That's the point. It's first his forgiveness from the king that, that allows him to now go and in turn be forgiving towards others. And, and this is the same thing that's true with our, with our, our peace and our harmony with one another, friends. We, we have peace with the king. That's what the gospel tells us. We have peace and reconciliation with God through Christ. Christ He's given that to us freely, and now we are free to live in peace and harmony with one another. And that's the life that he's now begun to describe, again, going all the way back to chapter 12, some of that language there. Paul's gone to great lengths in Romans 3 and 4, remember, especially to show how, how we've been declared righteous before God by faith in the work of Christ. Then in Romans 5, verse 1, he says, Since we have been justified, declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Later in verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of the God. And so, so again, these things, they're all connected first to our status before God. We're, we're justified by faith. We're, we're reconciled. We have peace with Him in our new position of righteousness. And because of that, we can rejoice in His glory. And now this is how Paul describes the kingdom that we're a part of and how we're to relate to each other. We follow the exact same movement. The kingdom, it's not external things any longer, like eating and drinking. It's the internal conditions of righteousness and peace and joy that we now let govern how we engage the external arbitrary things. And so how do these qualities inform what this should look like? I think there's two main groups here that Paul speaks to, and so we're going we're gonna to try to see how he instructs each group, right? The weaker and the stronger and their liberties to act in the midst of these inevitable disagreements with these ideas of peace and joy and righteousness in mind. Before we separate them, I think first we can, we can just identify one application for both groups, which is that we actually just accept the fact that there are going to be differences with each other on these things. We just accept the fact that we're going to have disagreements and differences and we allow each other the space to have have those differences of opinions. Um, notice how Paul here in Romans 14, he, he, never, he doesn't try to conform everyone to the same idea on this. Nowhere does he tell the strong not to partake in their liberties of the gospel, and nowhere does he tell the weak one that they need to. It's a choice that we have, and we, we each have to make it for ourselves. There's both freedom to eat and drink, and there's freedom not to. Paul says everything is clean in and of itself, but he also says, remember in verse 14, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it clean, thinks it's unclean, which means, get this, what's right for me may not be what's right for you, and vice versa. And this is where it really starts to get interesting, isn't it? Because now the question becomes not, not can I do it, but actually, how do we now navigate this, into, navigate this together 
in the life of God's people when we have these different convictions about what's right for me and whether or not it's right for you. Unfortunately, I think what we often like to do as Christians, again, is, is we, we come up with our own convictions about these things. One way that it's both sides, and we begin to, in different ways, try to legislate other people according to our own personal convictions on things that the Bible does not speak explicitly on. More formally, we actually create rules within the church or within a context that you, that you must follow and adhere to on these things or else you can't be a part of the community. More informally, maybe, we just create, we create cultures with these kind of nice, pretty little boxes that we come up with of what we think the faithful Christian should look like. And we, and we then create all kinds of this cultural pressure on everyone to fit within that box or be left with the feeling that they don't fit in because of these, again, abstract external issues to the gospel. And, and mind you, this happens on both sides, friends. Like, it's not, it's not one side or the other that does this. This happens on the weaker brother side, maybe the more uh, legalistic, tending side that it, they don't see their ability to actually enjoy their, their liberties, that would stand in staunch opposition to, to any practice of Christian freedom because they see it as unfaithfulness to God. But the same thing then happens on the other side, the quote-unquote uh, strong Christians on these issues, who they're able to, with a clear conscience, kind of engage and enjoy uh, these liberties, they can and do just as easily run to the other side then and, again, create their own little boxes um, and, and cultural pressures that are now centered around, not on unity and, and everyone's right to just choose for themselves whether or not they're going to do this, but that are now centered on actually engaging in these activities. So now the outsiders, they're, they're not the ones who actually do those things. They're the ones who don't. That's what happens. And friends, hear me, both of those, both of them are just as wicked. Both of them. Because both of them are an attempt to bind the conscience of a brother in Christ where the Bible does not. Both are an attempt to control someone else's walk with Christ, and both are a failure to walk in love, pursuing the edification of the brother before the perceived benefit of myself. And this is, this is the real offense here. This is what's really at stake with this conversation. What the gospel would have of us, again, is, is not just that we would be concerned with my freedom, but that we would be just as concerned with the freedom of my brother, even if they don't agree with us. But of course, that is going to look somewhat different on, on either side. And so let's keep kind of just pressing in and trying to see the, the application for each, each side uh, uniquely in this. Let's talk to the weaker brother first. Uh, two things I think the text would have of a weaker Christian on this. One, you simply need to realize that you are the weaker Christian. That's how the Bible describes you, if that's your position on these things. You're, you're not more pious, you're not more faithful, and you're not more dedicated to Christ because you abstain from these things. If your conscience is truly violated by anything that the Scripture does not explicitly prohibit, you are the weaker Christian. And, and friends, if that's you, please hear me. That's not, that's not to meant, meant to be, be harsh or condescending. I don't want it to come across that way at all. It's simply just the language that the Bible is using to describe where you're at with, things, at, w- with these things. And it, 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 it really is okay. 
it's okay. The assumption is that we're going to have this, this dynamic in the church with some who are, who are stronger in their faith on these issues and, and some who are weaker. And it's okay. And this dynamic, I think, like other imperfect realities of just this life and, and, and community together, is a good thing because this is how, how the Lord, part of how the Lord, he, he grows us and he matures us by putting us together in community with one another. But having said that, it also, it, it doesn't mean that it's okay to just stay there and not try to grow and mature in this. The second thing I think that the Bible would have of you is that you, that you, you both act in faith in the present, but also that you grow in faith for the future. What do I mean by this? Act in faith in the present. Simply put, don't be peer pressured into, into partaking in a liberty that in your conscience you believe is wrong for you. Don't do that. This is why Paul says in verse 14 that even though all things are unclean, it is, sorry, all things are clean, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. It's the same kind of idea as verse 5 from last week where he says each person should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then again at the end of our text, he ties in this idea of, of faith in verse 23 he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, friends, the issue is not whether or not you do it or you don't do it. It's not sin to do it, and it's not sin not to do it. What is sin if you do or don't do it out of a heart of anything other than faith and trust in God? That's the point. <laughs> the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's the gospel. It's faith in Jesus. And so don't just partake in something because you, you may feel pressured to do it or you don't want people to, to, to think of you in a certain way. Act according to the faith that you've been given. But we also say you need to grow in this faith as well. And, and what I mean by this is that you would, really, you would really believe, grow to believe that these arbitrary external things, they have no effect on your status before God. You need to grow in faith in the sense that you, that you really can do whatever it is in this category of things that we're talking about. And, and the Lord's okay with it because it's not inherently evil and because he's already sanctified and cleansed you in the gospel. And maybe, again, maybe that doesn't mean that you actually partake in it, but you at least see that the Lord does not require you to abstain, to be faithful to him. I think there's one major takeaway for the strong Christian on this as well, which is actually, I think, more kind of the force of this text and these string of verses specifically. When faced with a, with a, with a weaker brother who, who may be offended by your freedoms, above all else, the stronger brother should be, willing, should be willing to lay down his right for the good of his brother. Paul says it very clearly in verse 20. He says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And so, in other words, when I have no problem exercising a, a particular freedom or liberty, but my brother next to me is offended by my partaking in it, what do I do? What do we do in that moment? Am I going to be more committed to my own liberty and freedom to eat and drink as I please, or am I going to be more committed to the love for my brother and sister in Christ who, who may have a weaker conscience than I do and who is prone to stumble by my eating and drinking? 
even if you see that they're wrong. You understand that. Or feel that they're, they're being legalistic or overly conservative. What do you do? You love them. This, friends, is, is it's what we're called to do and what we're freed into now. We are not a servant of ourselves in the gospel. We, know, we no longer have to be concerned with our own personal gain. We have everything that we need in Jesus. What we're free to do now is lay down our advantages for the good of our brothers and sisters. That's the gospel. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Guys, <laughs> hopefully you've picked up on this by now, but like love, love is the thing that we're called to do as Christians. You understand that? It's love above everything else. We are called to know small responsibility to love one another and see them as more important than ourselves. And this love, like we talked about a few weeks ago, it's, it's like God's love toward us. It has no end. There's no end to it. It's the never-ending debt of Romans 13 that we have towards one another in the gospel because, because never-ending love is what's been dispensed upon us through the person and work of Christ. One theologian, he says it like this. He says, your freedoms are yours temporarily, but spiritually, they belong to your brother. Viewed rightly, your freedoms, they're, they're not even yours. <laughs> they belong to your brother or sister in Christ. They're not for your benefit. They're for his benefit. And so the mindset towards the brother of, of kind of, well, am I not permitted to, to exercise my liberties, Right? That mindset and that attitude on this issue, it's the wrong mindset. It's self-centered. It's the way of sin and the old man. Instead, what the gospel says is that we, we now view our rights, not even inherently as our own, but as belonging to our brother. Not for my good, but for his good. And so let's, let's, just, let's just take that idea, right? <laughs> let's take that idea and let's apply it here. And this situation that we're talking about, if your brother is offended and stumbling over your practicing a liberty that you really do have. You really have that freedom. But if he's offended, what should you do? You lay that right down. To fail to do that is to fail to walk in the one thing that we're called to do above all else, love. Well, what do I mean lay it down? How, how, how far do you take that, right? Well, let me just, let me give you the example. Maybe this will help clarify. You lay it down like Jesus Christ laid down his right as the son of the living God. <laughs> the one through whom, for whom, and by whom all things were created, who instead emptied himself, took on the form of humanity, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he could save sinners and bring them back into relationship with himself. That's how far you're called to go with it. And so on one hand, I... I I get the question, right? Like, does this mean that I, that I never get to partake or engage in these things at all? Do I have to give them up completely in every context for good? On one hand, I, I get that. And I want to say, I don't think the Bible puts that demand on you explicitly. I think in verse 22, he, he says, this faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And so there does seem to be kind of a, a, a privacy to these things that can be good and healthy 
and I think wise when dealing with these situations. But I also just want to come over here on the other side of this and say just as strongly that if you're asking how far do I have to go in accommodating my weaker brother or sister in Christ, like maybe you're asking the wrong question. Maybe even for the wrong reasons. Maybe you need to ask yourself in that moment, am I more committed to my own rights and privileges or am I more committed to the health of my brother in Christ? Notice, too, how there's even, there's even a, a, a proactivity that is demanded in this, anticipating the response of our brothers. Paul doesn't say, well, if you intentionally grieve your brother in Christ, you're no longer walking in love. No. <laughs> if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. What's the point? Well, there's not even room for you to come to your brother's grievance with this kind of objection that, well, I didn't, I didn't mean to grieve him, right? That wasn't my intention to do that. He's just taking it that way. There's a responsibility that we have to be, to be mindful and, and to be careful of how the weaker brother is going to take what you're doing. And friends, again, it all comes from this heart and this mindset and this, this disposition in this, that we should be willing, eagerly willing, to lay it all down for the sake of love and of peace and joy and of, and of the mutual upbuilding in the gospel because, because we first recognize that the kingdom of God, it's not eating or drinking. The kingdom of God that we really belong to, that we've been brought into, it's peace and it's joy it's righteousness. And while, while you may determine that it's good for you to eat and drink, which is your free choice, that is your freedom, Paul says that it's actually good for you not to eat or drink or do anything that causes your brother to stumble, lest your good, which you've rightly decided is good for you, be spoken of as evil because you've allowed it to become a stumbling block for people around you. I just want to end with this. Worship team, you guys can come up. We're going to wrap up here. Um, I don't know all the specific stories in this room this morning or, or experiences with this conversation and, and issue. I know I have mine. <laughs> but what I do know is that a lot of us in this room probably have been, have been hurt in different ways by God's people not getting this issue right. And some of that is no doubt from other people, again, getting it wrong towards us. And, and some of it is probably also self-inflicted and, and the result of us not getting it right ourselves either, whether, whether actively or in response to others. And, and I just want to take a moment as we close to, to just again, to just come back to the gospel that there is, there is grace, that there's forgiveness. And, and maybe you're someone who feels like you, like, you, like you need that for yourself. And if that's you, I just want to say that that, that, is, that is completely 100% free and offered to you in Jesus. 100%. All you have to do is ask. Some of you may need to extend that to other people who have, who have wronged you in this. And I would just say just as strongly, 
want to encourage you to go and do that. Do that in your own heart. Because this is the point. The kingdom, it's not eating or drinking. It's none of these arbitrary external things. It's joy and it's righteousness in Jesus. And we're not called to unify as God's people around, around issues of eating or drinking. As much as we may be hurt by people on these issues, we are called in the gospel to unify around something much, much greater and more lasting. And what we all need to do first is not, it's not just change our stances on these things or kind of agree to disagree. What we all need to do is, is, is see ourselves in each other, again, through the lens of the gospel so that we can move faithfully as God's people, as his body in Christ, and, and, and as a faithful witness to a watching world about what life in Jesus and his kingdom looks like. That we're people first of joy and peace and living in harmony with one another. Amen? Let's pray, and we'll close in song here. Father, we thank you again for everything that you have done for us, Lord. We thank you that we no longer have the impossible demands of the law upon us, that we're no longer tasked with our own righteousness and cleansing and purification, Lord, that that you have ushered in a better covenant, a new way, with a better Savior and a better high priest, Lord, that, that the, the sacrifice of Christ was good once for all, and that when he made his sacrifice, he, he didn't have to come in and keep going in and out. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sat down because his work was completed. And so we just look up, and we, we see you there for who you are as the, the, the righteous king who is brought us in by no doing of ourselves, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to, to, to move at faithfully as your people, that we would move as people of the kingdom, not concerned with these, these old covenant external things, defining ourselves by them, but that we would be defined by the internal qualities of peace and joy, and that we would live in harmony with one another, and we pray all these things in your name.